Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Be authentic in everything that you do. Blair James. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Storybox Podcast. I'm Jay Phantom, and I'm your host. Guys, this week, we've got Blair James on the show with us. Now, Blair is the owner and founder of the iconic brand, globally renowned as well, Bondi Sands. Now, on this podcast, we get to talking about how Blair's dad played a massive influence in shaping his life and his his career, helping him create his passion and innovation for business as well. We also get to talking about how Bondi Sands started so going from being a tanning salon to then becoming a globally renowned uh, product on the shelves that you can buy and also um, some other things so talking about how you can create authenticity in your life and then translate that into your business as well so lots of good content in this episode guys so without me continuing on let's dive into the story box and hear Blair's story So I'm sitting here with Blair James. Now, Blair, you are the owner of what company? Uh, Bondi Sands, the Australian tan. Okay, so I'm going to ask you one question before Mm -hmm. we go back and you tell me your entire story. Mm -hmm. And what is your, because I believe you've had quite a bit of success with Bondi Sands. So what do you define success as in your own life? I think success has always been for me, Having control over you know the own direction for your life, mm. um, that's always been very important to me. Is you know why I went into business. Um, it still motivates me to this day, um, and it's it's about having freedom to chase your dreams, um, being able to spend more time with your family if you need to. Um, so that's still yeah the main motivation for what I do. That's good, man. All right, so now we're going to get into all the fun stuff. Mm-hmm. How you ended up because we're talking before about sort of little bits of your life. Mm-hmm. So I want to hear a little bit about how everything sort of got started. So if you could go back to, did, was Bondi Sands always something you wanted to do? Um, not Bondi Sands. That kind of evolved from a, a previous business, but um, I was definitely exposed to entrepreneurship and, and branding very early on. Um, my dad, um, you know, was an entrepreneur himself, had his own store in the UK when we lived there when I was a kid. Um, so I sort of ex- was exposed to business at that at that age. Um, I loved brands as a kid. I always loved, um, you know, Nike was one that I've, I've spoken about a lot that really motivated me and I guess um, exposed me to, 
you know, why a brand talks the way they do, why they promote themselves in certain ways and understand the psychology that's linked to all of that. Um, so that really interested me as a kid. And so why um, was it Nike specifically? Why did you like that the most? I think it was tied back to uh, Michael Jordan was a big part of that. Um I was and part of my family. My, my brother was in athletics. Um, I'd later get into athletics. And so I was kind of, that was really the brand I was exposed to first. But, um, and I guess the, the thing I took in very early on from Nike was that they very rarely talked about product. You know, it was all about a feeling. Like if you look at um, when some of their early ads, they were literally just someone running it along a road, um, you know, in, you know, first thing in the morning, it might be slightly drizzling or whatever. And it's that emotion they get across in their, their imagery and, and the way they speak. Um, then they make clothes on a photo of a, of a shoe or something like that. But there's no talking about, you know, the technology in the shoe. It's all about, all about a feeling. Mm. And that's what I think what, you know, it's that which I guess, well, it worked on me. Um, yeah, it drew me closer to the brand. Um, so I think that was really what it was in the beginning. It was more the um, not trying to just market a product, which I found interesting. Right. And you spoke a little bit about your dad, how he was a big influence in your life. Mm. Uh, what did he do for a living? So he was a, um engineer by trade. So he was um engineering manager at Ford Motor Company for a number of years. Wow. And then um, he was an older dad. So he, was, he had me when he was 55. And um, he retired in the late 80s and decided uh, he'd like to move back to the UK. Well, it didn't start as a move back to the UK. We decided to go over for a couple of months. Uh, ended up staying there for three years. Um, and my dad, funny enough, opened an Australian store in the UK, so importing Australian goods into the UK. So finally, I'm doing literally the same thing. But he was bringing in um, yeah traditional Australian products like uh, oil skins and riding saddles and all equestrian stuff. So uh, that's what he was doing, and uh, so he did that for a number of years. And you know the business didn't go well, and uh, so we ended up losing most of our money uh, going broke off the back of that business. And uh, so it was it was a huge learning curve going from being very um, I think stable financially as a family and then seeing, you know, what a business can do to a family if it isn't run properly. And I, I took, I guess, a, you know, took note of the mistakes he made. Um, there was also like, like I enjoyed looking at his ambition as well. So there was the good and the bad off the back of that you know, you go from being very stable in life to then having literally next to nothing. Yeah. It teaches you to be scrappy. Um, so it was, a you know, an experience that I wouldn't change now um, because you go from, yeah, having everything then to having nothing. And, um, yeah, it definitely changes you as a person. Um, so what did it – how did it make you feel? Did it, did it motivate you even more? Yeah, I think it um, – I just always pictured getting back to what we were like when I was younger. And it's still something that I carry with me today um, is that um, there's a, a worry about not being secure again um, and that's what really drives me forward. It's, you know, with, with Bondi, it's always about, you know, what can we do next? We need to be better. We need to be better. Always moving forward. Um, so, you know, as a kid, I was always just looking at ways to make money to, uh, you know, so I could have the things that all the other kids had. So it was either... Yeah, you know, selling things I already had, or you know, um, I used to love um, my basketball shoes, yeah, you know, Nike basketball shoes, but we couldn't always afford to have them. So, mum would say to me, "If you can get half the money for the shoes, you can have them." So, 
I would treasure these shoes. Like they were literally made of gold. My, my mum was the same way. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, games of basketball. Yeah. And um, so what I used to do, I literally, I never wear them outside. Um, before every game, I would scrub them with a toothbrush and I'd have like, you know, a little jar of water with, you know, a nifty sort of cleaner. And I'd clean the shoes, sole and all, before every single game. So they were spotless always. Um, and then I'd sell them to the kids at school after I had them for six months. But they were literally brand new. But I'd sell them to the kids at school for half of what I paid them for, what I bought them for. And, um, yes, yeah, so the kids looked at those as, as, good, as good value. And um, that allowed me to, you know, go buy, yeah, the next pair. So... Um, it just things like that. It makes you value what you have. Um, look at opportunities deeper than what other people would. Um, there's always something around you that you can either monetize or you can use for you know to leverage up to something else. Yeah, I think I sort of had a very similar experience growing up with my family. We didn't really have all that much. We we'll get okay. Like my parents worked their absolute butts off to put food on the table. Mm-hmm. You know, we were content. We were happy kids, you know, run outside. And I remember when I, we didn't have too much money to buy extra stuff. And one of the things that I loved when I was 13 was basketball. Mm-hmm. So I got introduced to that, like from my Filipino mates, they all had shoes. They had the Nikes, they had Addies and everything like that. I didn't have any shoes. Like I had probably runners from Kmart. Mm-hmm. And it was like they didn't have any grip on them. I just, you know, I was just wanted to play. Yeah. And then I remember my first ever basketball game. I needed basketball shoes, and a friend of mine lent me his his basketball shoes. And he's a he's a kicker, right? My very first experience of basketball shoes was blisters on blisters <laughs> because I was wearing someone else's shoes. Yeah. I'm like stuff this. If I'm gonna continue playing, I'm gonna buy some shoes. Yeah. The first ever shoes that I bought, funny enough, were Nikes. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, 100%, man, like the the experience of going and resonating with a brand as well, like because I was the same way. Nike, everyone else is wearing them. I'm going to wear them too, mm-hmm. even though I can't really afford them. So um, what did, what could you see that was the main issues with your father's business? There was um, a couple. Uh, the first one, and, and at the time you don't realize, it's only when you look back at it, you know, hindsight's you know, a wonderful thing. But... Please. The um, the location for the store, foot traffic wasn't there. Uh, it was a brand new development. Um, didn't have the money to really market the store and, and really show people where to come and shop for these things. I don't know if my dad had done enough market research as well around who's actually buying this stuff. Um, there was a definitely a big interest in Australian products back then with um, you know, Crocodile Dundee launching and all that stuff. So, um, <clears throat> so I think... Um, Lack of resources to really market the the product, uh, the store properly. Location um, was a big was a big factor, and um, I think yeah, just lack of market research for understanding how much yeah people actually were involved in the category he was trying to sell. So you couple all those together, you group all those together, and uh, at the time when you know the Australian dollar is worth thirty pence, every pound you're losing, you're losing three dollars. Uh, so you go through money very quickly. So, um, yeah, I think that that was sort of the main issues. And that's something today, like, that I, I remember those things. Um, whenever I look at, you know, making a new product for Bondi or uh, moving to a new category or we're going to market a certain way, we research everything. We understand who we're talking to. Um, we make sure there's an audience for what, what we're making. Um, so we're definitely taking up a lot of that um, experience. I still take on, you know, board today. So how old were you when that all happened? Um 
So we moved to the UK when I was about eight yep. and then came back when I was about 11. And what did you guys do like for work or what did your father do for work when you got back? So uh, off the back of that, he he really lost his confidence off the back of that. Um, it was, I guess, a bit soul destroying for him. Um, yeah, he was quite successful and then lost everything. We lost the family home off the back of that. And I think he really took it on board that you know he'd almost destroyed the family in a way mm. um not that he did um you know i never felt like i really went without because they were always great parents mum uh had to well mum stepped up she hadn't worked you know since she was oh, I think mid-20s wow. uh she went back to work didn't have a lot of um skills or education um so she went back just doing a uh, reception job and so she was really yeah, I think at the time she was bringing home about maybe $380 a week or $400 a week um, after tax. So it was like looking after a family of five on that sort of money. That's, that's I, I, tough. And this is stuff you look back on now and just go, like, how did she do that? Yeah. Um, you know, you don't, you don't realize at the time. You're very naive as a kid. I knew that we didn't have what everyone else had, but I didn't realize how mum was, you know, what mum was doing. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so it was really mum who got us through the next next few years. Um, and eventually my dad uh, went back to work at Ford Motor Company about four or five years later. Um, and then funny enough, we were just getting back on our feet and then he, he passed away. So it was, uh, it was one knock after another for probably a decade of maybe more, um, of one sort of setback after another. So it was um, a lot of education a lot of learning through that time and you know, really shaping me into I guess who I am now uh, through those experiences and part of me you know it was I look back at it and it's sort of some painful memories but then half of it I, I wouldn't change because it 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 is you know developed who I am today yeah so you kind of like you need to take the good with the bad so what was going like how did you react to your father's death um, it was very sudden. So it was, um, it was, it was a massive shock. I was in year 12 at the time. Um, yeah, I remember not leave. I don't think I left my room for about three days afterwards. I was literally just sort of inconsolable, inconsolable about that. And, um, obviously didn't go for sco- to school for about three months during wow. year 12. Yep. And, um, just got to the point, like, I just thought, what's the point? Was that really like, oh, what's, what's the point? It doesn't matter. Like school's not important. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely had that attitude. Um, didn't want to go back to school, really. Um, and then eventually mum convinced me to go back to school and at the time I was getting right into athletics um, yep. and I, I guess funneled a lot of that into athletics. My dad loved me doing athletics. So it was um, that was a really um, – good way of me funneling some sort of that or funneling that energy through something productive. Mm-hmm. And I really put everything that I did on the athletics track. It was all in my mind was dedicated to him. Yep. Uh, so that was uh, one way that I think sport really helped me through um, or enabled me to help me move on mm-hmm. at, at least in some what, degree. What were some things that your mum said to you to get you outside of your room and go back to school? <sighs> I think the main stuff was, you know, probably pretty common things that people would say when, you know, someone, you lose someone close is that more that, you know, your dad wouldn't want you to give up. Um, you know, your dad always thought you, you know, were special. You were meant to do something. Um, you know, he wouldn't want to see you giving up. That was what she used to say a lot. Wow. Um, so 
Yeah. And that was something that, you know, she always encouraged me and, and made me feel, and I think most parents do this, well, I, I would assume they do, is that, you know, they made me feel like there was a future for me. There was always, you know, I was, you know, I was meant to go and do something yep. um, with my life. So that was, I always felt like they nurtured, I guess, that direction in my life to better myself. So, um, yeah, so I do owe them a lot for that. So was your father your number one mentor? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. We spent so much time together <clears throat> as, as you you know, imagine with most, most fathers, but he, um, he, yeah, I mean, he, even though, and this is one of those things where you have to take the good with the bad. Yeah. When he wasn't working, um, he just wanted to spend every minute with me. So every school athletics meet, he was there. Every basketball game, he was there. Um, he was always there to take me to training, and I think he just he just loved, um, you know, seeing me develop. And you know, his life then became, well, my life then became his life. And so, if he didn't lose everything and and continue to work uh, crazy hours like he used to, I wouldn't have had those years in my life. And you know, and really developed, I think, who I am as a person. You know, um, through the time that I spent with him, so you have to take with the good with the bad. Hundred percent. Yeah, I've had very similar experiences to you, <laughs> like a lot of loss growing up. One of my, I think, my mentor's big one was my grandfather. Mm-hmm. So my mum's dad. We used to go to his house all the time. He used to teach me pretty much who I am today. Like all my teachings, philosophies, is thanks to my grandfather and my parents. Of course, but my grandfather was like he was like in business as well. Mm-hmm. He did a three year managerial course in three months. Mm-hmm. Gave him a heart attack, yeah. but he still did it. Yeah. And I still have that same mentality, you know, like he used to tell me, Don't put off for tomorrow, what can be done today? Mm-hmm. And he used to say to me as well, Jared, if you don't ask, you don't get. Like those sayings I take with me today and I put them into practice. So I understand like when you lose someone that's that important to you it sort of gives you a kick up the backside and it's like, oh, crap, what am I going to do now? Mm. It's like, am I going to motivate myself? Am I going to, you know, push on? And like it's, it takes time. Like time is one of the biggest things to help someone get over a traumatic experience like loss. Yeah. And so where did you go from like athletics in terms of job prospects? Um, so that sort of took me through to like I was at that point Determined to do athletics um, full time. Um, you know, wanted to be you know uh, a sprinter at that at that point. Had a uh, I was training a lot at that at that time. Had a, a knee injury, which I thought was just a short term thing. Uh, had some bone bruising um, in my left knee, and it just was just not getting better. It took it was taking months, and I tried to get back to the, back to the track, and it just wouldn't just wouldn't. Um, wouldn't happen. It just, you know, knee just wouldn't hold up for some reason. Um, so, and it, it was just like, it was really a, a combination of a few circumstances where it, it changed the direction of my life. Really. It was, um, um, uh, mom had just been diagnosed with, she was diagnosed with uh, ovarian cancer. Um, and so it was kind of like, I can't be, I need to go and earn money. You know, I can't keep, yeah, working casual jobs and, um, you know, with no real direction. So um, that was when I looked to go, I went into real estate and did it, uh, took up a traineeship with Ray White and um, 
yeah, so I did that and it was really just about, you know, making sure we have enough money to come in and coming in and to support mum and, and everything else. And it was, I think at the time, still having, you know, still in shock from a dad day being gone probably three years by this time. Um, and then mum getting sick. So it was all these, it was just a little, yeah, one thing after another. Um, and it was, so when I, when I was training, uh, I, did, I was at university as well. And it was funny. I remember this is one thing mum said to me, which I think pushed me, almost realigned me to what I was meant to do. Um, I was doing occupational health and safety while I was okay. training. And I was just like, I did it because my dad always believed in university. And I just felt like I, you know, should do that. I owed it to him and I hated it. Like I just, <laughs> I remember being in class and like, you know, everyone else in the class was so excited about their assignments, stuff like that. I'm like, I don't care about this. <laughs> um, and I dropped out two years in and, um, and mum said to me, she said, oh, I knew you were going to drop out. And I'm like, oh, thanks. <laughs> Great vote of confidence. Um, and she's like, no, no, no. She's like, you're always meant to do your own thing. You were just, you just always be like that. You need your own business. You need to do, do that. Um, so that was like, you know, almost taking me back to it as a kid. And I was like realizing that's what I was meant to do. Uh, so I was, yeah, remembered that. And, um, so went through a period there where, um, you know, worked in real estate and then, um, worked in retail for a bit. And then when mum passed away, I moved down to Port Melbourne and, uh, mum left me a small amount of money that I was able to put into, um, I was going to do my own clothing store because I worked in real estate for, um, in retail for a couple of years as an, um, an area manager. Okay. And, um, I thought to myself, oh, I'll go and start my own men's clothing store. And my brother was like, why don't you have a look at, um, you know, tanning salon. I was like, once it's up and running, like you don't have to keep reinventing yourself, a lot less risk in terms of what you're buying. Um, I was like, mm, that, that makes sense. So, you know, I had mum left me, it was around $28,000. It wasn't much. Um, you know, it was all she had. And, um, and my brother bought into that business to invest in the business, help me get up and running. Um, and so that was my first business that I opened in, in Port Melbourne. And it was like the day I opened that, it, that store, you know, we worked till 3am in that store like days before just to get it open. And I just wanted to be there and it was just, you know, worked every day in there for the next three months. And it was just, you know, it just felt like that's what I should be doing. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's where that business, it was that business that turned into into Bondi Sands. It was, um, you know, seven years of customer feedback of what they loved about spray tanning, what they didn't like. Um, and I really learned so much about the consumer that, you know, I would go on to then market to for the next um, 10 years. So it's, um, you know, I still look back at those years in that salon as being, you know, some of the, like I said, the best market research you can ever have. Mm, 100%. Mm. So did you end up closing that salon down and then just moving everything to Bondi Sands, the product? We started um, actually making spray solution in, this, in the salon and we we're using it in the salon. Um, and that was sort of, you know, where the brand started. And then um, we were able to sell the business Um it was around 2012. They just announced the the ban on sunbeds in Australia at that time. So it was, um, and that wasn't. You know, we definitely didn't make the the move into Bondi because that was coming. It was more like this is just a much you know, much uh, more scalable opportunity. And um, 
So I was able to, you know, get out of that business and then, um, yeah, start Bondi Sands. Wow. So what was it like? What was the process like in starting Bondi Sands? Like was it a tough road or was it – did it come seamlessly? Yeah, it's – you know, Bondi's – it's been an interesting road. There's definitely been some some tough times but there was always, even through the really, you know, those sort of rough patches – there was always you just knew Bondi was it was it was going to work. It just and whether whether it was just because we believed it or whether it was you know it just had that positioning and it had that um, you know had a great product and positioning. But you know when we first started, we you know we didn't have you know we literally you know ran this business on a shoestring. Um, a business partner and I were running the business out of our lounge rooms. Um, I had you know a little bit of money out of the salon, not much, and. Um, I started uh, just cleaning apartments just so it didn't eat into that money. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, Bondi could stand on its own two feet. So, yeah, I'd go around and just, yeah, steam clean people's carpets and, and whatever just to keep money coming in during that time. And, yeah, first year it, um, it broke even, which is really unheard of um, for particularly, you know, like a, a product like that. Yeah. Um, so the first year it was very tough and, um, you know, Sean and I, we did, we did everything ourselves. We didn't have money to give to anyone else to do anything. So, um, but we we were very fortunate to come across some great partners in our first year. So our distributor who um, looks after all our products here in Australia, they still look at they still do distribution for our brand today. Um, that was you know that was the first big leg up for the brand, and we were able to sell into Priceline in our first year. And at the time, it felt like a huge milestone. Milestone, but you know we sold in four products um into 300 doors at price line and you know we were literally jumping over the moon it was like yeah couldn't believe it was was happening yeah yeah, it was my most exciting things i've done in my life and um we look back at it now we had maybe 30 centimeters with the shelf space um today you go into price line and you may see some stores close to 700 units on on shelf they have a lot of product um we own close around 60 percent market share so it's it's a very different story 10 years on um we supply around twenty two thousand stores around the world um but we we always had that vision from day one it was like we just i don't know whether you know you can manifest these directions in your life but we definitely had the vision that we were going to be the biggest self-tanning brand in the world and we were quite public in telling people that <laughs> before we even <laughs> sold a product. So um, interesting reactions when you tell people that. But that was, you know, Sean and I are both very competitive. Yeah. Um, both come from, I guess, um, competitive sporting backgrounds. And, uh, you know, I think we adopted that frame of mind with, with business as well. Like we literally, even brands that I remember at, at times we heard feedback from people at San Tropez saying that, oh, we don't see Bondi Sands as a competitor because our price point. And we're like, well, that's great, but we see we definitely see you as a competitor and uh, just like everyone else in our category. So we yeah. were very competitive. We knew what we wanted um, and we definitely went after it, you know, with um, innovative products and innovative ways of marketing and um, looking at ways that we could build a category, not just build our brand. Were you the first company to do self-tanning? No, we were um, – at the time, there was a big gap in the market and this is – you know, there's – I still do it to this day. I walk up and down the aisles in supermarkets or Priceline or whatever and I look at everything. I look at everything from peanut butter to frozen <laughs> meals and I and I look at price points and, and I, I look at where there's gaps and there's gaps everywhere. There's always an opportunity. So back then it was it was highlighted to me through, through the salon but 
you know, you had uh, Saint Tropez that was like a sixty dollar price point. Then you had Latan, which was at you know twelve through fifteen dollars. Saint Tropez is a good product, but bloody expensive. Um, Latan was more affordable, but the product was lacking. And um, so that really, to me, there was a huge opportunity to create a product around the nineteen ninety five sell on quality, um, you know, product that you know people hadn't had before and. We came to the simple decision, and sometimes the best decisions in business are very simple. You know, I wanted to sell our product at 1995 because I believed majority of our customers would be buying our product with pocket money because we're really, you know, marketing that 16 through 20 year olds. And so I thought, if someone's, you know, buying our product with their $20 they've got for their pocket money or whatever, I want them to have change. Um, and it was just simple as that. It was just I thought that was a you know um, an affordable price point for a product that had good volume and was good quality, wow. and that was something we we stuck to that direction for probably oh, I don't think we went over nineteen ninety five until uh, probably about six seven years down the track. So how much does it cost now? We still have all our all our core tanning products are all still below twenty dollars, but we have some more premium options now. So we have an Aero range and a couple others which go up to twenty four ninety five. So we're still not we're definitely still not pre, uh, premium price point. Um, we're definitely not up around the $60 mark, which Saint Tropez were. Um, but there's a bit of, yeah, there's a bit of variation in our pricing now. So what makes Bondi Sands different to Saint Tropez and all those other tanning products? Well, when we launched, um, the whole selling quality direction was, was something that was important to us. And when we talk about selling quality, you're talking about level of active ingredients. Mm-hmm. So the DHA, which is the active ingredient in self-tan, uh, most products in the market were around 6 7%. We were launching products at eight and nine percent, which was unheard of back then. Um, and to get a product that was stable at that level, mm. and also have a, a blue green dye base, which looks very natural on the skin, it gives you that old skin tone. Yep. Those two areas coupled together was really unheard of, especially at nineteen dollars. Mm. Um, so that was um, that was our, I guess, a unique USP. Adding in there as well that we we're Australian made, and we wanted to remain Australian made because we believed in our Australian heritage, but also a lot of people were heading overseas at that, at that time uh, to manufacture. We believed in supporting Australian industry and I think seven years later it started to become you know, more popular and almost fashionable to be Australian made, but that's mm-hmm. something we've believed in. We believed in being vegan friendly from day one. We believed that um, no animal testing should take place on any of our products or the ingredients in our products. So that was you know something that we believed back in 2010, which is really only – I think great, you know, gained momentum in the last five years, I suppose. Wow. Um, so we thought very, you know, very deeply into what our product was. Uh, we didn't just accept it, um, what a manufacturer handed over um, and what was, you know, just a, a generic product for them. We took pride in developing what our product was going to be and it had to be the best in the, on the market. And where did that name come from? Yeah, well, Bondi, um, it's it typifies Australia, that lifestyle. Um, you know, it's... It's a funny story. You know, I was in America when I was uh, younger, and it really um, it was so obvious that Americans just like adored Australia. That image that you know they just saw us this you know, fun loving, you know, sun loving, you know, health healthy country, and you know that was something that stuck with me for. Uh, you know, ten or well, ten years over ten years, and um, so when we created the tanning brand, I thought. I knew the products in America were were lacking in quality. They loved you know, most of the products over there. They were very orange and caramel based, which looks very yellow on the skin. So I knew there was an opportunity there for a better product. Mm. And I thought to myself, well, if you're going to market 
the best tan in the world, why you know why not link it back to that Australian um, healthy lifestyle and that golden image that you know, the US has um, about Australia? And um, we didn't want to call it something particular, um, you know, typically Australian like Australian gold or Australian bronze or whatever. Um, I wanted it to be something that was iconically Australian and something that really, you know, was the best example of what the Australian lifestyle was, is, and Bondi is that. You know, Bondi, when you think of Bondi, it's the lifesavers, it's the, you know, it's the surf, um, the golden sands, it's, you know, the healthy, health-conscious lifestyle that surrounds it. Um, so it was, you know, when you talk about Bondi, that really, you know, typifies Australia. Mm. Um, so that was why we chose Bondi. And we wanted it to be something that resonated with Australians as well, like if they're overseas, something that they look at and go, oh, that's Bondi. You know, I know mm. Bondi, like I can resonate with that. And now that product has gone all around the world. You've yeah. got celebrities, really famous. Was it Kylie Jenner? Yeah, Kylie Jenner posted, yeah. Posted. Working with her. She's yeah. using it too. So having that sort of publicity for this product that originated, was it in Melbourne? In Melbourne, And yep. the beach is in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so how funny is that? Like it's always <laughs> that rivalry between Melbourne and Sydney. But yeah. Um, I remember when at first, like when I walked down the aisle and I first saw Bondi Sands, I'm like, what is this? Like didn't have any, any clue. Mm. And I naively thought, you're going to think it's just hilarious. Mm. I naively thought that a woman actually was the owner okay. and the founder yep. of it because I'm like, Guys doing self tanning uh, doesn't, doesn't <laughs> yeah. really like you know resonate with me, but yep. um, I was shocked mm. <laughs> when I found out that it was actually owned by a man, yeah, and he's basically changed thousands, maybe millions mm. of women's lives with this product, yeah. So, how does that make you feel? Um, well, yeah, that's interesting. We're very early on, uh, you know, business partner and I would go to PR meetings and, yeah, they were expecting definitely women to walk in. Um, <laughs> interesting, you do a lot of trade shows around the world and there's a lot of a lot of men working in beauty. Um, so it was that, you know, people always ask us, you know, do you pinch yourself where the brand's got to, you know, have you done it? You know, is there anything about the success of Bondi uh, surprised you? We always want to be the world's biggest self-tanning brand. That was that was the goal from day one. But what you don't expect is how much people have taken Bondi into their lives. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's amazing. Like we see this. If someone writes something negative about Bondi Sands, a competitor or something, there's just this this community online that almost jumps to our defence. You know, and it's it's amazing. You, you can you can never forecast that's going to happen. You can never plan for that. You know, you just have to obviously yeah, stick to you know, your brand direction and, and what you're trying to do as a brand but and you, and you hope it's going to resonate with people but you, you never um, can plan for that. And that's probably one of the most things that – well, that's probably the thing that humbles me the most when you just see how, people, how much people love it. And I, it's amazing how many guys know about Bondi Sands now solely just because their partners look in the bathroom and their partner's got the cupboard full of Bondi and they just go, yeah, bloody cupboard's full of your stuff. Um so that's yeah, that's incredibly humbling, and um, but it also that drives you as well. That's what I love about it. You kind of you know how much Bondi means to people. Yeah. So when we launch something, it has to be good. Like I, we don't want to disappoint people, mm-hmm. and um, you know we, we that's I think that's why our products have driven innovation so much over the last few years that we're not just going to launch anything. Um, you know now. Um, our customers expect better. So um, 
I think that's probably yeah what's what we take out of it the most. It's um, it's a very humble experience, and you know you take that and you turn it into something that drives the business to be better. Do you find there's any pressure to remain consistent? There the definitely is. Yeah, yeah. it's um, the market has become far more competitive. Like I said, when we launched 2012, there was yeah three or four brands in market. In Australia now, self tanning market's the most competitive in the world. You know we. Um, yeah, it, it yeah. definitely is. I mean, there's bigger categories overseas. So the American market's far bigger, but you can go to Priceline, we've got like 14, 15 competitors on shelf. Wow. Um, and everybody's trying to knock you off, um, whether it's be new innovation or trying to do what you already do, you've already done but cheaper. Um, so it's, um, it's getting more and more difficult to be innovative um, and, uh, but now we just need to look at different ways of, you know, how, how do we do that? And yeah, it is becoming more difficult. And I think, um, what we do very well as a brand is we, we just focus on what our direction is. We don't focus on other brands too much at all. Um, yes, we keep abreast of what's selling for other people and how stuff's selling for us, but we very much have a view on this is where we want to go. And we are looking three to five years down the track. Um, and that's the vision that we that we follow. Uh, we try not to be distracted by what other people are doing. You can't control what other people are doing, so we'll just look after what we we do best. Mm, that's good, man. And what were some initial mistakes that you made starting Bondi Sands, or were there any? Um, oh, I'm trying to think, sort of early mistakes. There was. We probably had one. Probably the biggest mistake, I think, as a brand wasn't too early on. It was around 2015. We were so desperate to get to the United States that, um, you know, we, we partnered with some people that weren't right for the brand. Um, you know, we we definitely got ahead of ourselves in, in, you know, in wanting to get over there. I think the brand warranted a launch into the US at that time, but we should have been more patient in terms of uh, who we aligned with. And I think we knew it at the time. But we just thought, you hoped it would be okay. It's a huge learning curve because we've always been, you know, very fortunate um, with our partners. They've everyone who's partnered with us has believed in the brand and and really helped it uh, move forward. And they also want just want to be part of the brand, mm. uh, and that's that's what you need with partners that external partners that you work with. So that was probably um, a lesson a lesson in patience. And just don't accept what you've been given today, and hope that it's going to be right. Mm. Um, you know that probably that was a eighteen month relationship that was very difficult. Um, probably hindered the growth of the brand to an extent. And um, but again, it's you take the good with the bad. You know, yeah. we we learn a lesson out of that, and you know we are very strict now on who we align with, and you know that people really need, you know that our partners need to be brand fans. Um, and, and come from an authentic place. Um, so that, that's what we learned. Mm, that's good. Yeah. And w- what are some things that you're passionate about now? I think uh, as a brand, innovation is what we pride ourselves on. And again, it comes back to what our consumers uh, want to see from us, what our customers want to see from us. So innovation is really important. Um, you'll see a much stronger eco friendly direction from Bondi. I think um, any brand today, if they're not taking responsibility of their impact for the environment, um, you know, he's not going to be around very long. Mm. So, um, and you make those changes because it's the right thing to do. It's not 
It's not a bit, uh, marketing position. I've been saying for the last couple of years, being eco-friendly is not a brand positioning. It's just the way it needs to be. If you build your brand around solely being eco-friendly, in five years' time when every brand is eco-friendly, um, you've lost your USP. Mm-hmm. So um, that's something we uh, um, are working on heavily over the next couple of years and taking responsibility for the impact we've created as well um, In um, you know, with you know, plastics and... Um, that type of thing. So that's something that's important to us at the moment. Um, and yeah, just still creating great products for our consumers, um, offering better, um, you know, better experiences with the brand. It's not just always about buying product. Um, you know, what can we offer on our on our website or through our channels that educate people that make make people feel good about themselves? It's um, yeah, I think moving the business forward or brand forward in every way we can. How about for yourself? Um, I'm so intrinsically tied to Bondi. Like I feel Bondi is an extension of me. So um, I love as a, I'm a creative at heart. So I love to push boundaries. Um, and I, I enjoy what I get the most motivation out of is seeing Bondi take a stance on something or, or move forward in, in a new direction mm. um, and moving forward in ways that, you know, no one else has thought of. Mm. Um, so that drives me a lot. Um, I, I enjoy that that direction. So it's hard for me to separate separate a personal um, direction out of Bondi because Bondi is so personal for me. Mm, definitely, I yeah. can imagine like this is personal for me. Yeah, so I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about helping people grow and hear others' stories to help them grow. Mm-hmm. You know, so I understand that. What yeah, it resonates with me too. Yeah, and I think it's just like I mentioned before, we've got millions of consumers, our customers around the world that love Bondi. Um, so the biggest excitement I get is like when we launch a new product and people just lose their minds <laughs> and that's what we want. We want people to like, that's, that's why you do it. And it's, it's definitely not about the money. That's something that, you know, you hear a lot of business owners talk about like is, you know, the money side of it. And really, I honestly believe if you don't have, yes, finances are important, but it, money should really be a byproduct of what you've created. Mm. It can't be the driving force um, and that's, you know, when we talk about development of product or a new marketing campaign or um, it's all about making something enjoyable for the consumer first because it's Cause you can't have one without the other. One. Yeah. Yeah. Like money comes and goes quicker than you can actually make the stuff. Yeah. Like so what's the point in focusing on something that doesn't really last a great deal of time? Yeah. So, you know, like focus your energy, focus your time and your resources, what you have into something that's going to leave a lasting impression. Yeah. That's what I always say at least. I always said it like when they're first starting out, if, um, uh, you know, we spoke before we uh, got started on this that I meet with a few entrepreneurs most weeks and have a chat about why, you know, their business and why they're doing it. And a lot of the time people say, oh, I wanted this product because I was a big category, a lot of money in it. And, one of the first things I always say is like, if you're doing this for the money, like don't even bother starting because, you know, two, three years down the track, you know, um, if you haven't made any money, like it's going to become very tedious very quickly and most businesses don't turn over the money that they think they're going to three years in. So the motivation is going to run out pretty quickly um, if it's just solely for money because a lot of the time it's like, dedication and doing things you don't want to do for you know three four years before you actually uh, make significant money out of it with that motivation factor i think you've got to find something that's more powerful than just money yeah i mean money can be powerful 
for but, some people mm. and it can be a major driving factor but i think there's more powerful things than just money like, oh definitely yeah so definitely. what do you believe is the most important thing in business <sighs> maybe a hard question yeah there's, there's a lot um i think it needs to come back to you know something that you are authentically linked to mm. and something that actually means something to you um it's you know you look at the the biggest brands in the world and you, know, you look at their founders like they had like passion behind why they were creating it you know if you look at like steve jobs you know, and he's one that I refer to a lot. Is you know, person I admire for what he did, and it was his sole focus was about creating you know, ease of use. You know, making a seamless connection between you know the the user and um, and the interface. Mm. And you know that was it. It wasn't about money for him. It was solely about he just wanted to create a better experience. And you know, through that, he created the most valuable company in the world. Um, he changed the music industry, the movie industry, uh, the way we use our laptops, phones, the way we communicate. You know, he, he changed all of that solely by having a passion about um, what he wanted and how he saw the world. Mm. So I think like, you know, the most important thing is it sounds like such a cliche, but unless it's something you're passionate about, you're just not going to be motivated to get up and do it every day. And as your team builds, as your business builds, um, the people around you see whether you have that passion or not. And if unless you can be passionate enough that it becomes contagious to the people that are around you and they believe in what you believe, mm. your business is not going to go anywhere. That's good. Yeah, I appreciate that response, man, because it's something that I believe in myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So last couple of questions because mm -hmm. I know your times are available. So what does it take to have a good social media presence, you think? Uh, I mean, we've gone through, we build our brand on social media, um, but it's changed. Oh, I reckon, yeah, I think there's almost like I can, I can feel or remember four to five sort of different directions that it, you know, social media has taken over the last sort of 10 years. I think we're at a point now where um, people are just, they want to see um, transparency. They want to see um, originality and, it's not about marketing anymore. You know, I think Gary, like I watch a lot of what uh, Gary V talks about, a lot about like if you've got a brand today and if you're not treating it almost like a media company um, or a creative agency, then you're going to get left behind. Mm -hmm. I think it's as much about entertainment as anything else now. Um, it's about creating, instead of marketing and spending money on advertising, it's more about you putting the money into the, the actual, not placement anymore so much. It's more about creating great content and engaging people that way um, and bring them into your brand for your values and um, how you represent yourself as opposed to, um, you know, a marketing message. And I think that's, that, that's saying that message is going to get stronger. Um, I think that's, oh, that's definitely, you know, a direction for us as a brand. Like how do we engage people in ways outside of product? Mm. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I think that that's probably the that's probably the main thing to be honest. I mean, there's other ways of growing. There's ways of growing your following, like you know, along with the influencers and and everything else. But people are so I think have become so desensitized to 
influencers plugging product and everything else, they still work very well, but their content needs to be um, needs to be engaging. It needs to be different. It can't just be a product, you know, an influencer holding a bottle anymore. It needs to be something that is pushing some boundaries and, and really being transparent to who you are as a company. Um, so I think there's a lot of brands that do it very well. Um, but I think it's just constantly needing to evolve. And Eye-catching needs to be, like you said, entertaining, needs to keep keep your focus on it yeah because captions as well like people like seeing it they see the image first yeah so if you can capture people with the image then they're more likely to read the caption yeah so the caption is not necessarily the most important thing it's the image that you're portraying yeah and, and i think that you know ties back to people want to see they want to know what a brand's about they want to know why it does these things. What does it care about? What's it? How's it thinking about the future? How it's going to um, reinvent itself for the future? And you know, how how are brands giving back? That's what people want to see in social media now. It's not about you know the fancy uh, graphics and the um, you know um, you know just the fancy videos. They want to see trans. They don't see transparency from a brand um, and a brand that's conscious about its impact on the world. So I think that's you know. Um, there's a lot of brands doing that well now, but I think that's going to be the that's only going to come stronger over the next ten years. You can just see a trend. Yeah, it's like- and it's and it's amplified even the last twelve months, probably even less. Last six months, oh, I yeah. feel like the pressure on brands <laughs> to um, communicate in this way and pre- present themselves in this way as um has increased massively. Even just the last six months, we we felt the pressure as a brand um, immensely over the last six months. Um, so it's amazing how quickly that's really amped up. Yeah. Last, I think, last question. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, three bits of advice that you could give to someone starting out or just needing a, a boost in life. Um, I think starting out on a business, you can never do enough research, mm. um, and that means researching the consumer you're marketing to, what retailer it's going into, what price point it should be at, what um, you know, who are your competitors, how are you going to market it. That research, that research never finishes, um, but you need to you know, ins- understand your, your product inside and out. Um, and you know, from that, it determines you, um, your brand positioning. Brand positioning determines everything else. Mm. Like as soon as you determine what your brand positioning is, it determines what retail you go into, what the price point's going to be, who's your target market, how are you going to talk to them. Um, so understanding that consumer is what it all ties back to. Understand that consumer inside and out. Once you understand the consumer, everything else is easy. So I think that, that understanding um, your market inside and out, that's the first bit. Before you do anything, before you go and make samples or do that stuff, understand who you're making it for, um, and uh, you know what you want your brand to be. That's probably number one. Yeah. Um, probably number two is we spoke about it before. Is being authentic in terms of why you're doing it. Mm. Enter into something that you you're passionate about. You can offer value in, and uh, you're not just creating like a me too product because you think there's some money in it. It's it's a big one. Um, the third one. They're probably about the two big ones, I think, to be honest. Um, probably the third one. Oh, I think they're probably the two big ones, to be honest. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's they're probably You're the two. Us a lot of advice, anyway. So yeah, yeah. I think, so I yeah. think that's 
pretty much a or oh, what's next for you? Um, Bondi is really focused on international expansion at the moment. Obviously, we're in um, the UK. Um, World domination. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, through Europe. Um, just launching into Canada at the moment. So US is a big focus. Obviously, the biggest self-tanning market in the world. So that's a big focus for this year. Um, we are really building out our Suncare stable as a brand. So that's um, you know, something that's important to us and something we've always strived to be um, in addition to self-tanning brand. So there's that. Um, and then... Personally, getting married this year, so that's oh, a that's a big uh, that's a big year. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So August getting married. Um. So that's what gonna date? August tenth. Oh damn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my birthday's August 29th, so I was gonna yeah. say like. Yeah. Well, my birthday's August fifteenth. So yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, August. Cool. So there's that. So there's that. Um. So it's a big year for us. Uh. Yeah. It'll be a year for me personally as well as um with business as well. But um. Yeah. It's uh looking forward to it though. That's a great way to end. Uh, this podcast really appreciate your time Blair for coming on and giving us all the advice and sharing your story with us so thank you so much no worries thanks for having me thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Storybox podcast I really hope you enjoyed it if you'd like to hear more episodes like this one you can do so now over on Apple Podcasts or Spotify just by searching up the Storybox and if you got something out of this week's episode Please leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts and share it around with your friends and family. Let's start changing people's lives through powerful stories. You can also connect with the Storybox on social media for updates or to send a, a nice message via Instagram and Facebook just by searching up the Storybox. It's that easy. Until we dive next week back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom and don't forget to share your story around. I'll catch you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.